good morning all. My name's Ed Anton. My wife and I are down here in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where we work with the Hampton Roads Church, but that's not where I'm from. I'm excited to be with the New York City Church and that very beautiful portion of it that it's, it, it sounds like New Jerusalem, doesn't it? New Jerusalem, um, New Jersey, that beautiful portion. Oh, you, you're a blessed people. Amen. But we're going together before God right now. And you guys have been studying out God is. And you've heard a lot of different aspects and the wondrous attributes and characteristics of God. This is one that sort of ties it together that we look at today. And it is God is sovereign. It's a cool one because it's not just simply a characteristic of God. It's just like God's position to the rest of everything else. And it's, it's very easy to want to kind of latch on to maybe one of the lessons that you've heard and, and make God all about that. But God doesn't allow that option for us. Matter of fact, I think if we begin to make a God in our own image, you know, just God is love and we just overemphasize that, well, then we've set up an idol. And that's uh, an affront to a sovereign God to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, he is sovereign. In Exodus 34, fresh on the heels of the Israelites making Yahweh in their own image, which they had done through the golden calf, then God actually comes to Moses as Moses is like, come on, show me your glory. God's like, mm, maybe I'll let you see a little bit. And of course, you know, he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock. And as he passes by, Moses gets a little peek at God. But he doesn't just get a peek at God, which I'm sure was illuminating to him beyond belief. But he hears this from God. And what he hears from God is God's description of himself. And this description ends up being the most quoted passage of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. And here it is in Exodus 34. 6 and 7, as God passes in front of Moses. And then he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's sweet, right? I want that God. Who doesn't? But God goes on. Because we don't take God on our own terms, but his. But right without skipping a beat, after having said forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Take pause, right? Because now we, we have a God who is just and holy and righteous, and forgiving, and compassionate, and gracious, and slow to anger, and loving, and faithful. We have the whole package in, in our God. And in this, in this whole package of our God, we are just simply called to marvel. Perhaps even with a beautiful, healthy, reverent fear, come to a place of intense security. I, lo I love the way that Psalms and Proverbs both speak of this idea that, that as we have a, a proper reverence and fear before God, it puts us in a place of beautiful security, knowing that we got a God who's large and in charge. Now, I want to I look at 
the sovereignty of God, because on earth, there's a lot of things that try to set themselves up in a sovereign position. And right now, aren't we in the U.S. going through an election cycle that often tries to pit people into positions of relative sovereignty? And we can kind of overblow that, of course, or at least definitely focus too much on that, or even, God forbid, get our identity out of that versus a God, a God who has intervened and disrupted our lives and grabbed us and recreated us and given us honor more than we can begin to imagine. So let me read a couple things. I'm going to go through these a little bit briefly, but I'm going to look in Isaiah because there in Isaiah we get some great descriptions of a sovereign God working with his people and working with all the nations of the earth. Working with would probably be a generous term because it is God who is simply directing and orchestrating through his creation. Isaiah 45 says, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now, this is interesting because if you have a conservative view of the authorship of Isaiah, Cyrus is maybe not even born for about 100 years, won't come into power for for maybe 150 years from when he says this. The guy in power right now is Nebuchadnezzar, as Isaiah writes this. They are in exile under Babylon. But nonetheless, because God is planning the deliverance of his people— because they've already achieved what he needed them to achieve there in, in exile, and I'll talk more about that. He names names. Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. He'll strip kings of their armor, open doors before him, so that gates will not shut. I will go before you. I'll level mountains. I'm going to break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I'll give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name. Still speaking to Cyrus here. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor. Though you don't acknowledge me, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you've not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun... To the place of its setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. And then with the mic drop completion of this thought, he says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So God is saying, you want to you shake your fist at why do things happen the way that they do? Well, then shake it at me because I'm the one who is orchestrating. I am the one who permits. I am the one who directs in all of these cases. And he does. He, he directs the nations, the leaders. In Isaiah 40, he says, starting in verse 10, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. This is a picture of a mighty, powerful warrior that is before us. But then look at the very next line. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Wow. 
it's going to be tough, I think, to wrap our minds ever fully around the full-orbed view of our God. In one moment, the strong arm of a, of a warrior, and the next moment, the tender arms of a shepherd. That's our God. But it is our God who has gathered us. We are the flock that he now shepherds. And we can take great heart in that. Let me continue, though, in Isaiah 40, because it gives us a perspective to help us not get confused during a time when perhaps other things are trying to elevate themselves in our, in our view. Because God is calling us not just simply to a worldview that aligns with his. He's calling us to blow up all worldviews and have a kingdom view. In, in verse 12, the very next verse, he says, Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know, Think of the oceans in the hollow of his hand. Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. Who has held the dust of all the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills on a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon, that was a nation filled with cedars and cypress. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. God is the one that is going to raise up. God is the one that is going to allow whatever to transpire. But he will not allow anything to happen if it goes beyond his will. He will even allow, apparently, calamity so long as it brings about for, for him prosperity. He'll allow darkness so long as it brings about an appreciation of him, the light. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Darkness could not apprehend, comprehend, or overcome it. And so we will be in a world with darkness, but we will be in a world with light. And we know that there is a God behind it all. There's something interesting, by the way, in this whole Isaiah 40 passage. And I'm sorry, Isaiah 45 that I just mentioned. That as God kind of just regards the nations as just less than nothing, dust on the scales, even its leaders then, wow, how much less so. So he names this guy Cyrus by name. And I mentioned that at this time, Isaiah is under the yoke, as is all Israel, of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. God uses Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, uh, ultimately the greatest world leaders that will come in succession after him why? To just simply bring about conditions so that his kingdom can expand in the most optimum manner. What, what, what am I talking about? Well, God will use Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, the next great leader is Alexander the Great, and then the one that then supersedes him will ultimately be none other than Augustus Caesar. Again, we may view those as just the titans of Western Civ as we read through history books. But to God, 
just tools for something so much more significant in God's mind. And that is his people, his kingdom, and more than any of that, his son. And God's son will be born at just the right time, Paul says, Galatians 4.4. 4. At just the right time, he will be born under the law of a virgin. And what is that right time? Well, apparently, God had a 600-year timeline where he wanted to bring about optimum conditions and use nations and use rulers as he saw fit. Israel, as we kind of come into the beginning of Isaiah, was a nation that had forsaken God. They had neglected his word and had even come to the place in Isaiah 1 where even whatever they did to honor God became just ritualized and empty. And so God needed to change all of that because ultimately he wanted to bring his kingdom and his kingdom view to an entire world, which he, of course, will do. He describes it, as a matter of fact, in a uh, contemporaneous uh, prophet in Daniel. Matter of fact, in Daniel 2, there's this kind of image that is very vivid in the Bible of Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time, having a a dream of a big statue that seems to be variegated with a head of gold and shoulders and chest of bronze and a belly of, uh, of, of, I'm sorry, head of gold, silver, bronze in this, this area, and then iron down below in succession. Gold, silver, bronze, iron. And they represent nations according to God's interpretation of that dream through Daniel. Uh, and and those, each of those nations are just simply going through in succession until they become like dust. Because what will happen is that in this dream then comes a little rock that becomes a great boulder. It smashes that statue, smashes it so that the statue itself becomes like this dust on the scales. It just scatters into nothingness. And there, that rock establishes itself and grows into a a, a mountain, a mighty mountain, All peoples stream to it, and that nation will endure. That nation will have no end, and that nation is the kingdom of God. That's where we find ourselves. Now, it's it's interesting. We see all of that played out in a little passage in our Bible as the good news about the kingdom of God is spreading around the world. In Acts 17, we see Paul after being beckoned by God in an image of a man from Europe, a man from Macedonia, to kind of jump on over to the next continent and start making his way through. When he does, he lands on the road that is right there. The, it's the Via Ignatia, as my high school Latin teacher, Tarcisio Santanon, taught me. But anyway, the, the, the Ignatian way is this road. And along this road, he stops in Amphipolis and Apollonia, and doesn't stay. Why? Because there's no synagogue there, the Bible says. But then he gets to Thessalonica. There's a synagogue. And it's a synagogue with both Jews and Greeks, and they're like pretty intense into the word. He then moves on because of, uh, of, of the fact that he is turning the world upside down with his message and proclaiming that there is another sovereign king, one called Jesus, is what the text tells us. That's rather disruptive, and he is dropping bombs of disruption all along this Ignatian way. He does the same thing over in Berea, stops there as well. Why? 
Again, it's on the Ignatian Way and also because there's a synagogue there. And we see the pattern. We see that this is a pattern that isn't of Paul's great strategic mind, but of God's making of 600 years. Because God used these superpowers that we just talked about, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, or these great rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, and Caesar Augustus. Why? Just to set up his kingdom for an optimum spread of his message because look at look at what 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 had to happen there you had to have a synagogue 1500 miles away from jerusalem filled with people who really love the word of god and not only that we're reading it in another language in greek and not only that there are greeks and jews in that synagogue and those synagogues happen to be connected even though they're far flung around the world by safe passage over sea and then ultimately by safe passage over roads that now exist how did God pull all of that off? Well, first of all, with Babylon and with Nebuchadnezzar. Israel, again, had, had begun to forsaken the word, took them into captivity there. And in that captivity, free from maybe what were the trappings of religion, which were the temple and sacrifices, the Jews got down to business. And they began to just look at the word of God. And it's there that their hearts grew aflame again. That we know historically, where, where, where Judaism then really latched on to the Torah, the Tanakh, and its study and established synagogues. Those synagogues now were really firing on all cylinders. They needed to be released and launched into the world. So God uses the next ruler that we see there in Isaiah 45, Cyrus. Cyrus then succeeds Nebuchadnezzar in short order. And as soon as those synagogues are, are, are ready to roll, Cyrus comes in with a new approach to ruling. And he allows latitude and he allows them to disperse. And so they do. They get out of Dodge. They get out of Babylon. And they then explode in their dispersion all over the known world. We now then have on a map synagogues, these centers of, of, of learning of, of God all over the known world. And, but that's not enough because it's still kind of an insular thing. There's a lot of inside baseball going on here where they're speaking and, and uh, reading in Hebrew. Uh, scriptures that are not accessible to the general population. God, as you remember, God wants this kingdom of God to be where all peoples flow in, not just the Jews. The Jews were going to be the catalyst that would launch a base camp by which all of the world would be able to come on in. So guess what? God then raises up Alexander the Great. He grew up right there in Macedonia near the Ignatian Way. He raises up the next great leader, of Greece in Alexander the Great. And what does he do? He wumps and stomps all through the known world in record time. It's why Daniel kind of refers to him as he looks into the future as, as like, a, like a leopard, uh, the, the speed of which by which he's going to take over this world. And, and he does. But why does he do so? Because Alexander the Great had a fervor to Hellenize or to Greekify the world. That is to help them to think logically, to use reason, uh, to use great argumentation, which is called the dialectical method. It's the, it's the word that Paul uses when he goes to those synagogues, that he uses a dialectical approach to reason through and explain the scriptures to those that are there with a, with a, 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 a vigor that would help them to realize that Jesus is the Lord. But now, also recognize this. The other thing that Alexander the Great did is he took all of the great books of the world at the time and had them all translated into Greek. Why? So that every people who were now speaking Greek, uh, thanks to his sword, they were all now thinking and speaking Greek 
so that they could then have access to all the great books of the world, including the Bible, the Torah, the Tanakh. So now we have all around the, the, the known world, all of these synagogues. Look at what God is doing to, to make this all possible for the kingdom to spread. He's now used Nebuchadnezzar to get them loving the word. He's now used Cyrus to get them to spread all over the place. And now he's used Alexander the Great to kind of transform what's going on in all of these cool places where people are proclaiming and extolling God so that everybody could understand it, both Jews and Greeks. And now Greeks start to crowd on in. Uh, Gentiles start to crowd on in. They're, they're hearing of a God that's so different from the capricious gods that they had known. And, and as they're yearning to find out more of this God, it's at just this time, 27 B.C., where now Caesar Augustus comes on the scene and through his dominance and through his brilliant administration as an, as an empire, he is able to link all of those dots, all those dots of base camps for the expansion of the kingdom get linked as the seas are now made safe from, from pirates and the land is made safe from bandits and not just made safe, but made accessible because during this time of peace, he builds roads, builds roads everywhere, including this big east-west road um, for, from uh, Thessalonica through Berea and, and beyond uh, that's there. That's pretty amazing. And Paul arrives on the scene, and we look at it as, oh, that's interesting. No, it's more than interesting. It is the work of a sovereign hand of God of 600 years in the making so that as the kingdom of God is established, it is able to have its expansion in amazing record time so that the whole world will know. The world was turned upside down, Acts 17 says, as they all came to hear of another king, one called Jesus, our king. We have another king, one called Jesus. And we're called, as we begin to understand that kingdom, uh, early on from John the Baptist, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying about this kingdom, repent. That is, think absolutely differently. Have a paradigm shift. Have that what experience. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's a big statement because he's calling us to have a, a, a absolute renovation, restoration, reformation of our worldview that is no longer just a worldview, but a kingdom view, a kingdom view. And God didn't just do all of that, didn't just arrange all of that. He did one more thing. He gave us his son. He gave us Jesus, his one and only son, whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased, his greatest and most precious gift. He then gave to us, to us, so that we could be redeemed. And as he brings blessing upon blessing to us, we probably can begin to fathom the sovereignty of God, but then even in his sovereign view, recognizing that we're going to need an intervention of proportion that would be beyond anyone's imagination to comprehend. That his most precious son would humble himself, take on humanity, take on the most debased version of humanity, 
and then be humiliated and butchered on a cross for us. And as we get ready for communion and we look at our sovereign God who has done all of this for us, reflect on 2 Corinthians 5:21, where it talks of what God did for us through his son. He says, God made Jesus, him, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. It's one thing to look at sovereignty, but it's one thing to get our identity from sovereignty. Uh, It's so tempting to get our identity from all that's going on in the political sphere right now. But it's such a counterfeit version of honor or dignity. What we get, according to 2 Corinthians 5, from his son, who had no sin, to become sin for us, we become the righteousness of God. Righteousness. We are made righteous. We're not just simply a subtraction operation when we are redeemed by grace. It's an addition operation. It's not just the removal of our mess, although Jesus took all of that. I mean, it says Jesus took on the septic tank of my life's work of filth and sin uh, so that not just it would be removed from me, but so that I would then be honored and righteous, beautiful in the sight of God, significant in what I get to now do with my life. It's not just a subtraction, it's an addition. And my goodness, our new identity for all of us when we contemplate this is street cred honor that is incomparable and really immeasurable. We walk this earth, and we ought to walk this earth like a boss. No matter what the world has tried to put upon us, just fall to the side. Why? Because we recognize That when we were redeemed by God, when we came out of the waters of baptism, we don't just come in in erasure, a blank slate. We come out of it filled with the very righteousness of Jesus. The very street cred, the very CV, the, the resume of astounding righteousness that was Jesus's is all now us. And if we could just see ourselves through the eyes of the heavenly realms, see ourselves as those that have benefited from God's sovereignty in arranging all of this and now are the beloved possession of our sovereign God, we should walk this earth like a boss with the sovereignty of God. Let's reflect not just on all that God has arranged, but this most particular thing that God has arranged, that he has arranged his son to become sin for us so that we have this identity We are the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father God, who are we that you would take consideration of us? But yet you tell us in Psalm 139 that your thoughts for us outnumber the grains of sand of the seashore. Thank you, God, for your shepherd's love and your warrior's power. And through all that you've been able to design and orchestrate, that you've arranged time and place and space and opportunity and disposition so that we could come to know your greatness and your intimate love for us. Thank you for all that you've done through your son, through his body, through his blood. 
uh, thank you, God, that uh, though we are many, that in Christ we form one body. Uh, And as we have become one body, we are unified, unified by our kingdom view and washed, washed by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the wine. Thank you for the righteousness that attends to us as we take of this communion in a worthy manner. In Jesus' great, holy, and sovereign name I pray. Amen.